millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Say Why to Drugs. Thank you all so much for the lovely messages you sent me about the CBD episode. I'm really glad you guys enjoyed that because I was really pleased with it as well. And thanks again to Amir England for being such a great guest. This episode is another real treat with a really great guest. A few months ago, I was lucky enough to be able to have a chat with Adam Fajcek, the drummer from Baby Shambles and a psychotherapist. We spoke in the cafe at the Wellcome Trust and talked about all sorts of things, from what psychotherapy is to whether musicians might be particularly prone to developing substance use problems, all via Adam's fascinating journey detailing why he wanted to become first a musician and then a psychotherapist. So without further ado, Adam Fajcek and I say why to drugs and music and a host of other things. Um, my name's Adam Fajcek. I am a professional musician, psychotherapist, and I like to think of myself as, a, as an informal music psychologist as well. Excellent. Well, I guess the first thing I'd like to ask you about is the psychotherapy. So, yeah. do you work specifically with musicians? Is that right? Well, I do. I, I launched an initiative probably about four or five years ago before I started my training as a psychotherapist which was based around more coaching strategies or just some support, almost peer support from somebody that had been through the music industry um, from a frontline perspective as a musician. And also um, DIY releasing and insight into the managerial situation as well because there was a time when I was managing Baby Shambles infrastructure very poorly but I got a great overview of what was, what was needed in that situation. So I feel I can kind of bring all those different elements into it. And what type of issues do musicians who come and see you tend to have? I think it varies. I think it's not really a specific struggle from musicians. I think there are innately challenging environmental conditions when you're a musician, especially a professional musician on the road. But most of the time, most of those external environmental struggles, they tend to clash with what people bring to the industry themselves as well. So most of the struggles I see are kind of a mixture of both environmental and, I guess, intrapersonal and intrapsychic. So all of those things together, rather than the industry is causing this problem, I generally think if most people have... I mean, I look at it sometimes from an attachment perspective or they have a secure sense of self, 
then they can better handle those environmental conditions. So I'm always quite reluctant to point the finger at the industry and say, you know, there's the problem. I think there are inherent problems with it, with the commoditization or the objectification, but I do generally think that people come into the industry a certain way and how that way is, the impact of the industry will, will have different outcomes. So. And in, then in terms sort of specifically of substance use, is that something you yeah. see at particularly high levels in the musicians? It is, yeah, it differs really. Some musicians I work with are not so much using substances to regulate their affects. Some, some are, some aren't. Different types of drugs as well. I guess some of the people that are less energised, they can use certain types of drugs to energise themselves and some that are over-regulated, hyper-aroused, can then use certain drugs to de-stimulate. So different, again, different. And do you think that's something specific, that the way musicians use drugs? I don't think so. I, I, I think hmm, you can lean it into creatives, you can lean it into what kind of impetus creatives have to actually create, whether or not they need certain drugs. I don't, I don't know. I mean, I can tie that back into the environmental stuff. I think there are certain envir environmental factors that would lead to certain drugs being used. But I'm not sure if it's the musician themselves. Mm. No, I think, I suppose what I was trying to get at is it's something certainly that, from an outsider perspective, musicians seem to be a, a group of people who are perhaps given a bit of a free pass around substance use. Whereas mm. if I were to go to my job, even drunk, yeah. I would probably get in quite a lot of trouble or use my drugs, yeah. where I lose my job. But for musicians, there seems to be almost an encouragement. Mm. certainly a kind of acceptance that, well, you know, it's the rock and roll lifestyle. Yeah, I think we've seen a bit of a downward turn in that in recent times. I think people are much more health conscious. I also mm. believe this is a cultural phenomenon that ties into, you know, we go back to rock and roll, we go back to what it actually meant, you know, the birth of the teenager in the 50s. And you've got, I guess, you know, rock and roll from the States coming over. Then you've got the classic Beatles and the Stones. And I think a huge shift in how the teenager was created almost was part of that rebellious nature which tied into the recorded music industry so therefore i think a lot of that ties into that you know this kind of archaic how we view rock and roll and i think now we're at a time where rock and roll isn't all that there is you know i guess up until probably when genres were splitting predominantly probably with the advance of technology and we've got you know we've got electronic we've got disco we've got all these different facets coming together into the modern music world I think rock and roll and probably other genres, yeah, are more informed by what we perceive as drug use and the romanticisation of some of that stuff. But I do think that kind of comes from, from a cultural shift in teenagers and natural rebellion, which is shifting now. Yeah. Now, obviously, I'm going to ask you some questions. If you don't want to answer them, then that's absolutely okay. fine, and I can just cut it completely out of the yeah, podcast. Yeah, but I'm really interested in why you got into why you wanted to become a psychotherapist oh, right, okay. and I suppose particularly given the band that you were in Baby yeah, Shambles yeah. was a band with a bit of a reputation I'm still like, in we're going to go and do more stuff I think, oh fantastic so. I didn't realise but obviously it's like Pete in particular yeah, um, yeah. is maybe one of the last <laughs> kind of bastions of bastions, rock and roll lifestyle because um, yeah, I often wonder what that means you know I, I see you know I see some people online you know rock and roll and and with that statement, and I often ask them, what, what does that mean to you? Because I think it's quite phenomenological. What does rock and roll mean to you? Yeah. Because to me, it meant something very different. It, mean, it meant for me, rock and roll was an outlet for me to get away from, I guess, you know, my quite an impoverished, neglectful background. So the, the romanticisation of, of going against authority, and, and that was appealing to me. But the rock and rollness, I'm, I always think I'm, I'm more probably... 
I don't know, more jazz to rock and roll mm. in a way, because rock and roll to me meant, I don't know, it wasn't something that was so alluring yeah. as maybe some other people. Well, rock and roll, it's my rock and roll, you know, like it's your rock and roll. Yeah. I think it has such a phenomenological quality to it that what does it mean to you? But, you know, in the context of you were saying there, I can't remember the question. <laughs> well, it, was, it was partly sort of why, why did you want to become a psychotherapist? Why, okay. And... Yeah. Did you ever have any kind of problems yourself or did you see problems in your bandmates that made you sort of become particularly interested in this topic? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, if I reframe that as rather than problems, I guess inherent struggles, I think, as I spoke about before, growing up in an environment which was uh, neglectful, impoverished. I grew up in quite, it was quite a fast lifestyle. There was, there was some, from looking back now with my new lens, I think there were some substance issues. So my background definitely projected me into a place of feeling quite wounded, not really knowing it because that was my framework. And then music for me was a huge outlet. It, it really soothed me. It gave me some kind of cultural identity. It gave me a way out because I'd left school at whatever, I don't know, 18. I'd left, my highest grade was like a C in, in geography, everything else, fad, everything else. So I was doing what was still a YTS back then. During that, I was involved with my criminal activity and I got pulled up on it. So my life started to spiral further and further down. And I was, you know, I was using substances just to self-regulate and self-soothe. And it was on a very, a very fast, dark trajectory downwards. I was, I was involved, I was taking probably the only area where I felt I had some control was, during, was through substance using. Um, from that, I managed to find a springboard to go and do a BTEC in music at 19. So I was quite an, an old co cohort, really. And I went to Essex and done a, a BTEC with mostly a lot younger than me. But I, for the first time, I felt that I could do something and achieve something. So I found music from, from that age. Because I knew no one there, generally in a college environment, people kind of come together from the local environment. And I think that I didn't know anyone. So I would just practice and practice and practice. Looking back, probably unhealthily, again, in, in an attempt to regulate myself. But workaholism has a, has a much more morally praised value in our society. So come out of that two years with a sense of worth, thinking, hold on, I can actually do something. Um, culturally, you know, that was a time of Britpop, so I was really, wow, this is something I'm really into. Um, and academically thinking, hold on, if I do this, and I can go and do a degree, and in, and in my world, a degree was this holy grail, a degree? You know, no one in my family had done that. And none of my friends had done it. So this, the degree, expecting to finish the BTEC, come home and back to Milton Keynes I grew up in, take a few years out and polish whatever I was doing but I managed to get onto a jazz degree finish that then got onto a PGCE to study secondary school music because I felt like I really want to be a musician but I have to be practical here I don't really have any other financial support so I've got to support myself so undertook the training was a school teacher for a number of years and kind of I still felt wounded but I felt okay enough and then was in lots of different bands. Um, I started an MA in music education because thinking, okay, if I'm going to be a musician, I can, I can keep building that, but also I want to build my academic infrastructure. And then during that, I was in one of my bands and one of the bands took off. And that was, that was Baby Shambles and that went on for probably a good 10 years, touring the world, you know, being shaken up all over the place. And then coming through the other side of that, really hitting the floor with a bit of a crash. Again, you know, my, my life was like 100 miles an hour. I felt I was moving so fast. <laughs> and really struggling emotionally from that, working out who I was anymore, because I'd be on this journey. Um, a lot of my old wounds kind of coming back up. 
um, I think I was in the middle of a grief. My mother had died the same time that I joined the band, so I'm holding two things. I'm holding this, this innately sad, I can't even begin to describe this sense of loss, and I'm holding this amazing opportunity, life-changing opportunity, this anomaly. So I didn't really deal with the grief. So when I come through the other end of that, I really struggled, I think, trying to process all that happened from the trauma of being in the band and the excitement and probably some of the trauma from my previous life. These things tend to come up in those moments and connect all of those strands of fragmentation. So I was in quite a bad place. So I, I was seeking therapy myself. I struggled to find a therapist that really understood. I saw a few and they were in the arts and I'd sit in front of them and I felt they, they didn't really understand this perspective of being not just a musician, somebody that puts so much time and effort into their musicality, but then having that commoditized, so that then warps and tarnishes it slightly, and my background as well. So it was quite a, a unique experience. So I struggled to find a therapist that could understand those, those elements. So after about four years in therapy, I, I'd previously done a master's in music technology. So I wanted to more, rather than be on the road, I wanted to get more involved with recording. And towards the end of that, I was thinking about my next step and I was gonna do music therapy. And I realised that being a music therapist, as much as I would love to do it, and I still would, I thought career-wise it'd be quite difficult then to work in the field as anything other than a music therapist. And I was really interested in my own therapy and uh, lots of the reading I was doing. So then the master's kind of slightly shifted into my last thesis was about the emotional content of how music production can impact us and impact other people. So there's all that stuff going on. So that was leading me somewhere. And then started to explore through friends who were therapists and through my own therapist, my own therapy, and my own struggles, my own wounds, about training to be one. So that was my journey. That's how I got to that point, really. So from lived experience, from the value I got out of that in the therapy content, but also from being a professional musician. But not just being a professional musician, because I work with professional musicians. And I think there's one thing of... If you're a corporate musician, so you're out, you're working, I mean, that can be incredibly stressful. But then you superimpose that in the professional music industry where you're being commoditized. And I don't mean that in a negative sense. I think we all need that to get to make money from our art. And then if you add a third element, which is fame and more psychosocial aspects, you know, we were lucky, unlucky enough to be in the public eye when bands were, you know, the swing of the popular music pendulum was towards bands so we were kind of thrust upon that and all that that entails as well is incredibly validating for me somebody that struggled with a sense of worth to suddenly being some autograph and stuff like that it was really important for me and one of my big struggles is coming through that with the biggest loss initially for me was where am I going to get that validation from now because the wound that was already there had grown considerably so, you know, having to unpick all these things that I got out of the industry, all these losses that are no longer there, it was incredibly rewarding for me to reconstruct it and sit down and play a guitar and go, oh, God, I'm really moved by this. So, you know, pulling apart all those different aspects led me to train. And I always knew that at some point I wanted to put together all of my musical training and all of my psychotherapy training and psychology insight into a doctorate which would combine all of those things which I'm just about to embark on now um, so I feel like it's kind of a nice completion about to evolve but still being a musician still at heart I'm a musician you know I practice every day I still want to release I still get excited about touring albeit on a smaller level um, still very passionate about it really so that's how I ended up here God, when do you have any free time? <laughs> yeah it's true yeah. Um, 
yeah, not much. <laughs> yeah. What do you kind of do as a psychotherapist then? So if a client comes to see you, mm. what would the process be of, um, of working with them? It depends on the person, I think. You know, it's so unique. I think if you ask any psychotherapist or counsellor, what it's very difficult. Yeah. It's working with what's in the room, and people are very different. And so I'm always aware, because I'm an integrative psychotherapist from a relational training, it's about me as well. It's about how do I impact this person? What goes on from my experience? Because it's a mutual engagement. You know, I work in what we call two-person psychology. It's not the doer and done to. It's like a joint process. Um, of course, I've got experience and, and I have enough insight to be able to really use myself as an instrument to think, well, this person's impacting me like this. I wonder if they impact other people like this and that's part of their struggle. And in a safe time or a safe space, offer that. You know, that, that might cause a rupture and then we'll work with that. Um, so Yeah, because some people who listen to this podcast will probably never have experienced psychotherapy or won't, yeah, yeah. won't necessarily know anything about it at all. So yeah, yeah. is there a specific sort of set session time like is it just you and this other person in the room it's just us two yeah. just talking yeah that's basically the sort of it's talking it's also exploring the other person's way of being how they've constructed their narrative how they view themselves in relationship how they view themselves internally um and there's, there's different meta theories you know i i as part of my model i heard the meta theory i hold it of, of like trauma as well because I think something like trauma, when we've experienced trauma growing up, it's, it's more than just talking about it and processing. It can be quite embodied and it can be quite a felt sense. So it sometimes goes beyond that. And regarding length of time, it depends, A, what the person wants and what they're struggling with. And I'd say, suggest to them, well, you know, if you've come from a highly dysfunctional background and this has been happening and building over a number of years, you might need a bit longer, but you may need to just, or you may want to just work on this aspect and that's fine. And even if we don't have to go into the depths of some of your struggles, as long as you make some progress in terms of how you can understand your own experience, I think that's potent enough, really. Sometimes for different people, you know, different people want different things. And I, if we could talk a bit about substance use, because obviously this is a podcast particularly about yeah, yeah. drugs. When people come to see you with substance use problems, what would a sort of successful therapy kind of look like? Would you be trying to help someone completely stop or would you be trying to help someone manage their relationship with substances differently? Or, yeah. I mean, I guess it could be either or potentially. I mean, the most important thing is for them to get some insight into why they're doing it. From my perspective, I think substance use comes from dysregulation. So people trying to either locate emotional experiences, not have emotional experiences, almost in a creative way. It's a create creative adjustment to try to find something outside of yourself to fix something inside of yourself so for me it's about insight it's about well why are you doing this and I can come from two perspectives I can get quite existential and I can say well look you know you're taking this you're taking this drug every week what's the impact of that and so I say well there's no impact I say well is this a problem for you well yeah because of my health okay so this way up it's motivational so yes you can carry on taking drugs that's fine that's if that's what you want to do and create your way of being but the, what is the cost, you know, what's the, the profit and loss? And some people then come to their own realisation of maybe I don't want to give up just yet, okay, but the, the potential profit is I might lose my life. And then we can explore if it is something that somebody wants some resourcing with and behaving with this and I really want to stop and if they're also admitting that they have got a problem, then we can look at resourcing and I think there's behavioural resources, I think there's like... Um, the fellowships, if people want to engage with that, so 12-step meetings, there's so smart recovery. And again, it's, it's what people want. And the other part of that is some people come in and they don't 
really want to admit that they've got a problem. And again, that's okay. We'll say, well, okay, could you abstain for 90 days? Yeah, no problem. If they can, you say, well, okay, well, let's talk about what's going on there. That's fine. So what, what triggers you? Then they can work on their own triggers. But if they can't, then it's like, well, so this is clear that this is a behavioural pattern and it's a habit, so we need to put some behavioural strategies in and then we can get involved with other behavioural strategies, whether that's kind of cognitive, whether that's fellowship stuff. It depends on the person. You know, I think we're all so unique. Some people don't want to go near fellowships. Then we can explore that. It's all good for the meal. So like, what is it? You know, you tried one meeting out to say CA, cocaine anonymous, it just didn't feel right. And even from going, there's insight. You know, I just didn't get with the people. Is that because you felt that you held too much shame to actually embrace them as them with a similar struggle? And then there's that. So if it's shame holding you back, let's go in and see, well, where did shame first start? I think it's quite... It's too vast. I think we're all so different. And, and I think from my approach, which is really quite subjective and, you know, person to person, the whole, I guess, the, the eye-thou perspective of, of quite humanistic in a way, it's too easy to say, you're an addict, this is what you have to do. I think there is an element of that we have to embrace. If people then are open around and say, I need some structure and I need some behavioural elements. But it's, it's, I think we're too unique in a way. And this is one point where I wonder whether there might be something about sort of musicians and their the kind of the places that being a musician puts you that might make it hard to deal with substance use. So for example, if you're playing gigs, you will almost certainly be playing them in venues where that are yeah, licensed and selling yeah, alcohol. Yeah. I, I mean, I've been in bands for many years and I've never ever, even in the rubbishest venues where we were being paid nothing, I've never ever not been offered free booze. Yeah, of course, so, yeah. Um, And potentially other things as well. Mm. I can see how if you are beginning down a sort of spiral of problematic substance use, mm. that particular job could yeah, Make environmentally, it it's problematic. Much, yeah. yeah, it's much closer to where you don't want to be sailing, really. And yeah, behavioural resourcing. If you're if you're struggling from an addiction, then we would say try to stay away. You know, try to for drink, try to stay away from from a wet place. But you're right, as a musician, I think it does make it inherently more difficult. There are resourcing we can put in place in terms of okay, well, it's your choice. Do you want to go to the after show or not? because you're going to be adrenalised, you know, cortisol's going to be flying around your body. So in that respect, your prefrontal cortex is going to be offline. So you're going to be talked into something probably. And rather, and, and again, it's that thing, it's, we could go hardline about it and say, do not go there. We could say, well, it's kind of your choice. I know, and I don't know whether you agree, in terms of the client, you're going to be what I call offline after that gig. You're going to be full of all sorts of stuff going around you. Just, you know, natural body hormones. Do you think that going there is a good idea no okay well how can then we structure that okay let's speak to your tour manager who's going to say to you you're not going to go but if you keep pushing and start threatening him with getting a sack then you're going to ultimately go to this after show i mean it's just a small example but i try not to infantilize you know i try to say look you're going to have to at some point take some agency over this because if you don't then it's to your detriment if that's what you're suggesting but yeah, I think there's inherent environmental stresses that are going to make it a lot harder as a musician. And I guess coming from the other side of sort of someone who listens to music, we do see that drug taking occurs more at music festivals or yeah. people say that they like to listen to music when they're intoxicated and all that kind of thing. Like, What are your thoughts on that? Do you, do you think drugs and music go together? Um, I think there's a higher sensitisation with certain drugs and certain music. Whether or not they go together, I think, again, it's down to a personal taste because you could take a certain drug, listen to a certain BPM of music, and it's going to have the adverse effect. 
because if you take you take something which is going to something's going to stimulate you, and then you want to listen to something very chilled and ambient, it's not going to have the same effect unless you like that discombobulation going. Yeah. So yeah, I, I think there probably is. It's like a food, isn't it? It's like a, if you want to have a certain affect, you can take a certain food and watch some stimulating film to increase that affect. But I think the biggest part of, of my work also is working with the affect in the body. It's like, well, do you even know? Have you ever... And, you know, th th we live in a, a time of mindfulness and I think it's such an important resource without all the cliché and, and being mindful about, well, do you even know how you feel right now? Do you even know how you feel once you've had a kind of hope? You know, do you even... Can you feel that? Because I think most of us are oblivious to that in a way. Well, lots of us that have suffered from dysphoria, I know I was initially, it took me... It took me two years in therapy to know what emotion was, you know, and another two years to process that, and it's, it's ongoing. But I think when we haven't been lucky enough to have any emotional regulation from our caregivers, we really struggle with that. And also, I do think lots of musicians, it's like chicken and egg, lots of musicians are drawn to music initially as a source of regulation. So in the pool of musicians, we are going to find probably a high percentage of people that are quite dysregulated anyway emotionally because they've used music as a as a super you know whether that's attachment a transitional object any of these psycho terms they've used it as a resource so therefore if if you're using this as a resource you need something external anyway and then maybe the jump from using music to smoking a bit of weed it's a bit of a continuum so i think there are a larger percentage of people that are musicians that probably are slightly musically regulated anyway and I want to pick up on something that you said earlier as well, that musicians are perhaps getting a bit more, or people in general, are perhaps getting a bit more kind of health conscious. Yeah. Is that something that you've noticed? Because obviously your band, Baby Shambles, kind of came to prominence just at that, the kind of height of this sort of, I don't know what to call it really, but kind of like the end of Britpop and what came after it and sort of... Yeah. 2001 certainly was the height of like lad culture and certainly yeah. like young people drinking that that's the highest rate in sort of the history of the drinking being wow, measured I thought it had been yeah. beat before that how interesting um, certainly among young people anyway on the internet <laughs> well it's very interesting now that it, young people certainly drinking and, and perhaps other substance use as well does seem to be going down again yeah, and yeah, is that something health is rising yeah well exactly it's very unusual pattern mm. is that something that you noticed yeah i think i've noticed generally an increase in uh, awareness of physical health and there's a part of me that believes that to be more aesthetic i think we live in a culture now where everything's visual so people want to look their best um you know most of it is all filtered anyway it's synthetic but i think people now you know if we see if we see the growth in in health food and supplements and gyms and gym wear it's phenomenal and, and, and i think a lot of the bands now a lot of young people generally from a certain demographic are, are very influenced by that visual aspect that aesthetic and i think that definitely ties into it i don't think there's been a huge sweep in terms in terms of anything else that's my perspective that because we live in a very much more synthetic aesthetic environment people want that perception to be looking healthier because healthier means I'm more attractive if my muscles are bigger or if my, you know, my tan is glowier and my figure is more svelte. And that's, you know, that's, that's what we live in, those times. Um, I think if you're a certain generation, it's much more important, I think. So I think then that would probably lean you against drinking too much, taking too many drugs, because you're going to be doing, you know, getting photographed. Something might propel you to go the other way as an anomaly where you just go, fuck that and I'm going to go as dirty and dingy and as messed up as I can. 
I do think the cultural implication of the aesthetic, the synthetic aesthetic world we live in, has had a massive impact on everything, from music to every, I think every aspect of culture. Yeah. And am I right that you, do you work mostly private, or do you do? No, any I work NHS in a centre as well. I, I've, I stopped in NHS last summer. Um, it's probably certainly going to be starting again very soon. But I, I was working as a psychotherapist. It wasn't in addictions. It was just with people that refer to primary care. Yeah. So. And in terms of if you were going to to sort of get, try and see a psychotherapist through the NHS, mm. is that quite a straightforward process or is it...? It's becoming easier. I think like anything, resources was a struggle. But I was lucky enough, I was based in North London. Our waiting list was... But it's longest six weeks. We'd get people in within two weeks. But sometimes we discombobulate people. Like, wow, I only saw my GP last week and you want me in. Um, we were lucky enough to have a very fluid practice and it's quite well resourced. I hear of people waiting for months and months. So I think the first port of call, yeah, is GP. I would assume GP, but there are, you know, there's mines, there's these places where you can get very reduced fee therapy. And there are kind of around London, there are very numerous resources, I think, where you can get reduced fee therapy. The GP is always a good resource, and depending on where you live, it's going to take longer or shorter. Really. So, last question. From your personal experience of, sort of knowing musicians, but also from your experience of working with musicians in psychotherapy, are there any key aspects of clients or their circumstances that need to be better understood by the kind of addiction research community in general? And also other other therapists and other people helping to treat musicians specifically that could improve their the treatment or the tailoring of their treatments. Um, I think an understanding of the environment. I think the understanding of what it's actually like to be on a tour bus. I think it's very difficult. I think people can ponder and talk about. You know, I know a lot of music industry therapists, and uh, I, I guess in in that I'm the I'm quite an anomaly. I'm the only one who's probably been on tour and been subject to what it's really like. Most of the music industry therapists, in London anyway, come from a background of the infrastructure, so the, the more commoditised network. And I think it's a very different experience if you've been working in, for example, a marketing department. I think it's just as important, but it's not the same experience as is being a musician, because, you know, if I take about my experience, I'm holding that music is very key to my core. So the very essence of, of touching an instrument, of engaging with music on that level, and we take away the periphery of the commoditized nature of it. So that is my very essence. And then we put that in that environment, which is incredibly demanding, the conditions of it, the, um, the dysregulation of performing, the, the touring, there's so many attributes which we know. And then, as I said also, the, the psychosocial aspect of what that, does, what that did for me, you know, raised my sense of worth, and that was all over the place, and fame, status, you know, my own wounds were kind of being patched up in that place so one thing I would say is trying to trying to connect with the real visceral experience of what it's like to be not only a musician because that's hard enough I often think being a musician is really hard because there's no one to say yeah that's good that's bad you don't know where you are with it it's an innate drive that we, I feel that I have to do so it's both a blessing and a curse. I have to play an instrument every day. For me, whether that's regulation or something else on a transpersonal level, who knows? So that's hard enough. Trying to make a living out of that is double hard. And then making a living out of that is an amazing opportunity. And I'm always quick to say, yeah, it was an amazing opportunity, but there were in inherent triggers for me which, which caused me to struggle. The understanding of the complexity of that, I think, sometimes is overlooked. I think even the very part that you're a musician, it's almost like... The very objectification, which I think leads to more distress, 
it's almost implemented on people looking at, oh, he's a musician in the industry. It's like, it goes deeper than that. You know, it's more than that. You're not just a thing. You're, you're an organic, subjective experience that has got different levels of, of struggle going on. And I think that, that insight to those areas is often overlooked, I think. I think objectification is a key word there because yeah. we as kind of outsiders look at musicians and we see a very specific side of it. We see mm. the public side, we see yeah. the gigs, we see the after shows, we see the like photos of people falling out mm. of taxis or, you know, all of this kind of thing. What we don't see is the yeah, driving uh, for hours in a tour, or yeah. hours, days, weeks, months in a tour bus, uh, not really seeing people other than your like bandmates, management, yeah. uh, arriving at a venue, having then hours to kill before sound check, yeah, or yeah, yeah. where you eat, sort of where you sleep, yeah. all of this kind of thing that is the kind of reality mm. of touring. It can be quite boring, You're really yeah, repetitive. I agree. Yeah, I mean, I got incredibly bored. We're touring the same album for three years. It's like, as an improviser as well, I got incredibly, felt quite boxed in. But I think culturally, our bands become what we want them to be. And it's one of those interesting things. That's, my experience in the industry has totally shifted my perspective. I met all of my idols, all these people I grew up with and thought, wow. And I realised that I'd created... It was a, and again, you know, kind of quoting the Martin buber it was, I'd created this idea, I'd created an object to be what I wanted them to be, and they weren't that person. That's not who they are. I mean, we can never be, unless we sit down and probably have years of personal therapy with that person, then we can really see each other. But the other interesting area of what you just said there, again, you know, we marked all these environmental kind of factors, but... You know, we also don't see, you know, for myself, there was a time when I was doing nine hours a day practice, you know, and that was, it was both a blessing, it was, I think it was an addictive process, it was incredibly regulating, it was incredibly dysregulating in terms of my social and interpersonal commitments, it was very destructive. There's all that of being a musician as well, which again kind of gets overlooked, because you're a musician and you've been put in a framework where people are objectifying you to get what they want out of you and of course that needs to happen because you need to be commoditized you need to generate income and the only way somebody is going to invest in you is if they can psychologically create a malleability in what you offer for them to buy into if that makes sense so i think there's there's always aspects and my biggest thing i work with with musicians is we talk about the commoditized nature of the industry but not in a dirty way not in a dismissive or the industry way it's like well hold on you need this because if you want to be sitting in your bedroom and doing five hours a day and making abstract art that's brilliant that's great if you want to make some money from it then that's a different matter you can be true to your own self and make art for you and that's that's great but if you want to step outside of that you have to be commoditized and part of that is you're going to have to be malleable and you're going to have to do some things that aren't conducive or congruent with who you feel you are but who you feel you are probably isn't who the person that's buying your records thinks you are. Now, it's great if we can acknowledge that and we can say, right, that's great, because then you're protected in a way, because everyone goes and goes, yeah, I'm just being mean, man. So no, you're not. Because even if you are, you're being filtered through whatever it is, media articles, you know, we're all filtered, whatever we do. So it's, for me, a lot of the understanding is a bit more existential with artists. It's like, well, let's look at you, let's get some understanding of your way of being and your narrative. Let's see now that the safest way for you to contain and preserve that presence inside an area where you're going to have to bend slightly to sell your product. And it's about, it's about I think people don't acknowledge that enough as artists.
you know, they don't really get that insight into saying, well, here, this is me. If I want to sell a million records, I need to get to there, but maybe I don't. Maybe it's a continuum. If I want to sell 100 records, and for me and my journey, I brought it right the way back, and I'm lucky enough now to have a very small fan base. I can tour when I want to tour. I can release when I want to release, and I can make the music I want to make. And if they don't buy, I don't care. And that sounds really quite bigoted, but it's not. It's, I really don't because it's not my source of income now. And, and when I do, probably when I do a lot of DJing stuff, yeah, there's, there's less so, because I'm playing to a crowd. I don't know how many truly authentic, authentic, authentic musicians there are that are existing in the commercial world. Probably none. It's pretty difficult. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to mention as well, I was incredibly lucky, you know, I, I don't want to come across as uh, being, I guess, ungrateful, because I think it's some of our journeys, and even the journeys that evoke wounds or create wounds, as long as we're lucky enough to try to process those wounds and heal them to an extent or to a greater extent, I think it's a, it's a process of growth for all of us. But I just think the music industry is a lot more in-depth than some people kind of give it its credit for. And I think amongst all the music industry, there's the musician. You know, amongst that musician, there's a human being. Because we can kind of tear down, can't we? So if I'm sitting in you know, NHS with just... just a person, they're never just a person, they've got their whole lives, but then we frame that, oh you're an artist, you're a musician, we frame that in a commoditized music industry, and we frame that in terms of fame, so suddenly you've got all these layers up, and all of those unique layers would interact in different ways, and I think just, just holding that awareness or the intention to try to explore some of that stuff is key, whenever we are thinking about that as therapists, but on the other side of that, maybe the people that I love listening to, I don't want all that, I just want them to be an object for me, so it's those two things, isn't it? That seems like a brilliant place to wrap it up. So cool. thank you so much no for your time. No, that's okay. Absolutely brilliant. Great. And there we go. If you enjoyed that conversation, you can find a little bit more of this interview over at the other podcast I make, Addiction Audio, for the scientific journal Addiction. I also asked Adam a few questions about theories and treatment options, and you can find that conversation over on the Addiction Journal SoundCloud page. I've put a link in Acast as well. The next episode of Say Why to Drugs is similarly music-themed, and it's the second live episode that we've done, and it was recorded a few months ago at the Smithdown Road Festival in Liverpool. So join me again in two weeks' time for that, and bye for now! Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.
it. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.